Hi, this is Larry Pasca, Executive Director of NCSS, the National Council for the Social Studies. This episode features an author published in an NCSS journal. Please enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, how are you? Doing excellent. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing all right. I was, you know, we're, I'm still in school, but we are thinking about next year mm-hmm. and how to, you know, do two different things. And one of the things that we're going to be looking at in particular is the inquiry method and bringing that more into our classes. You know what the inquiry method, right? I do know, but, you know, I knew you were going to ask me that question. So I've got a definition ready. Oh, this I, is perfect. I, I, I used Google and and looked at the first thing that came up, which is, of course, the best way to find things in our world. That's a joke, everyone. Go listen to our episode on civic online reasoning. So here's a a definition we could use is that inquiry education is a student-centered method of education focused on asking questions. I like that definition. I read it. It was the first one I read, but I liked it. I like the idea of it being centered around questions and investigations. Does that sound like kind of what the way you define it in your school? Yeah. Actually, do you know what? I was just thinking when I was doing my student teaching, my cooperating teacher gave me a book, like an old textbook. And he was like, oh, look at this textbook. I was like, okay. And it was all questions. And I was like, mm-hmm. holy cow. And so inquiry method, also popular in the 70s. You know, most things in education, if you study the, the history of the field, have been done over and over again and have come. You know, we kind of go in waves where things come up and then they go down and come up and go down. And, uh, you know, recently, inquiry has really come up, especially with the C3 framework. Right. And, I, and when you think about good questions, just like we had Rebecca Mueller on a few episodes ago, and she talked to us about compelling questions. And I'm like all in. When I, I'm like basing my classes on asking like provocative, interesting, engaging, not academic questions. Like what? But, well. So you're talking about the college level. So, yeah, give it to us. Yeah. So it's at college level, but so for example, I will teach foundations course and say we're looking at gender that week, gender issues in education. I would ask something like, are our schools sexist, right? As a way to like actually get at it, I think that's a really intriguing question to people. Um, It's a complex one and it really gets people involved as opposed to the old questions I used to ask, which were like, tell me the like, what is like gender? Ten, yeah, 10 reasons or the social, political, and economic features of blah, blah, blah. And then everyone's sleeping before I get the question out. Oh, no. So. Do you know what? It's interesting. So I definitely see this at the college level. And we do talk about the high school level. I wonder, like, does this also work for elementary schools? Yeah, of course. Oh, and I think, isn't that all kids want to do is ask and answer questions, right? They love questions. And they're oftentimes better at asking questions than adults. And so I think, like, the inquiry spirit, we've got to we've got to keep it alive at the elementary level because a lot of them come with that spirit, I think, to school. My niece just wants juice. Yes. Well, she'll maybe eventually she'll wonder where juice comes from. Ah, uh, that is and, a good question. And, you know, the wage, the, how much wages the people who make the juice, you know, make and the, the geographic impact of bringing the juice across the country. 
or across the world. I can't wait to have that conversation with her. So, uh, speaking of good conversations, we have an entire panel what? of excellent guests. Yep, we do. I know, I brought guests today for the first time. And uh, <laughs> so we are going to bring in an entire panel. Um, and actually, since we, we have a panel, we're going to let our lead person on this panel, Emma Thacker, if, if she'd help us introduce the panel. And this episode comes from a uh, an edited issue that Emma Thacker was the lead editor of from Social Studies and the Young Learner. So welcome, Emma. Thanks, Dan and Michael. Thank you for, for having us on, and I think I'm, I can probably speak for the rest of the panel in saying that we're excited to be here and highlight the amazing inquiries that are happening at the elementary level. So I'll introduce myself. Um, so I'm, I'm Emma Thacker, and I'm an assistant professor at James Madison University, where I do elementary social studies education. I did my doctoral work at the University of Kentucky, which is kind of how I came into the C3 realm. I had a teeny tiny part, like getting coffee and stuff when the C3 framework was being produced, um, since I was one of Kathy Swan's graduate assistants. So all the coffee, the copies, that's that's my job, or it was. So She mentioned Kathy Swan, Michael. Isn't that like one of our, our words we're supposed to yell at? Like, yeah, when whenever you on, hear yeah. Kathy Swan, you need to scream. She gets mentioned loud. in so many episodes, it's become a thing. Do you have like a bingo card? <laughs> yeah. Kathy Swan inquiry? Yeah. If we don't, yeah. we will. Yes. Yeah, you should. <laughs> and for listeners as well. I'm always interested in this. So you're at James Madison. Do you focus more on James Madison and his legacy because you're at that university? In what way do we focus more on that? I think they only focus on it. Like that's the only course of instruction. It's everything about James Madison. I just find James Madison fascinating, starting with how tiny he was. Like he weighed like 110 pounds or something, right? Um, he yeah. was just like a tiny little man. And that's that's it. That's actually main, the main thing. But uh, I... I there's like all these interesting people that colleges and schools are named after across the country. And I often ask people when I'm at them, I'm like, do you know much about that person? And oftentimes no one does. Right. We, uh, I think we, we do try to really, there's a lot of James Madison celebration here, but there's also, we're aware of some of his flaws. I don't mm -hmm. think that that is something that institutionally we like focus on maybe enough but it is something that we inquire about and I think students definitely leave here knowing some about Madison the man yeah uh, he was the midwife of the constitution I think that is the never mind no but something like a, that yeah. I'm taking I'm taking us totally off off course <laughs> I know and, we're but <laughs> but I do I do find it interesting too but like you just exactly said that James Madison was for example a slaveholder obviously the key mm -hmm. part of his legacy. And so understanding that and institutions sometimes that are named after people struggle to wrestle with, to actually, you know, delve into this, the problematic sides of them. I'm sorry. I was curious yeah. about James Madison. Yeah. Um, we should talk at another, at another time about, about that. I'm doing a really interesting course uh, just on in James August Madison? at Montpelier where, where my students are going to do an archeological dig and it's going to be amazing. So we can talk at Kufa about a bit more about Madison. So 
So please tell us a little bit about this issue you put together, and we'd love to meet our other panelists here today. Yes, yes. So so basically, when I was asked to be a guest editor for the special issue of Social Studies and the Young Learner, I, um, I'd been hearing murmurings in like the social studies world about, well, the C3 is great for high school, but elementary teachers can't really can't really use it. It doesn't work in the elementary classroom. And as as you were saying earlier, our young children are so curious. They they come with all these questions about the world and how it works and what's their role in the world. And it's it's only natural for C3 to be used in the in the elementary classroom. So I wanted to um, use this issue as a way to share the successes. Um, of K-6 teachers and teacher educators uh, across the country. And so that's where our authors come in. I thought we'd just maybe go in alphabetical order. So starting with with Aaron Casey, and then we'll go to Katie Knapp, and then to, that is alphabetical, I think, and then to Carly Mutertes. So Aaron, could you introduce yourself? Yes. Hello, everybody. I'm Erin Casey. I'm an assistant professor of elementary and early childhood social studies at Louisiana State University. Um, And I really enjoyed being able to contribute to the special issue because so many things that I investigate were brought together from inquiry and developmentally appropriate practice with young learners and even arts integration. So um, that was one of the things that uh, was a little bit different about what my part of the issue was. All right, I believe we are moving to Katie Anderson Knapp. Hey, okay. I am an assistant professor at uh, Kent State University. And yes, we talk about May 4th a lot there. I know that (laughs) that question was coming. And I just recently am now also running our early childhood program. So I'm focused on preschool through third grade, um, the really young end. And I was so excited to be a part of this issue because I am and have been a strong believer in the inquiry method. And you know what I was just, as I was listening to the introduction, I was reflecting on, you said, you know, back in the day, they used to do things like this, this, these things we find crazy, maybe now. And I went to elementary school in Cleveland in this really experimental open school that was grades one through six in a huge room. Oh my. But it was divided, but it was very flexible, lots of different groupings, and uh, it was very inquiry-oriented, very project-based. And I I think, and I'm just realizing this as an adult, I think those seeds were planted back then, and so I've always had this faithfulness to make sure that students are at the center and that we're really inquiring about things that matter to them and matter to the world. So somehow that led me to Emma. So here we are. <laughs> I am I'm real curious just for a sec. So the open school movement, right, is that, if I remember right, was kind of this idea of just kind of not breaking up into rooms, but having more like divisions of spaces, right? What was that like? I always just imagined it being really loud. You know, it wasn't. Somehow, I mean, this sounds idealistic, but I think people really were so engaged. We learned to be very independent workers, although there was collaboration Uh, amongst a a grade level and across grade levels. And sometimes it was a little bit loud, but it didn't seem to be an issue that I remember. It was also a really kind of nurturing place where there were lots of carpets and curtains. And so maybe it was absorbing the sound more than the regular kind of stale classroom. But it was a, it was a really unique experience. I wish I saw more of that. I, I heard a few years after I 
uh, left, it had closed down. So. Oh, no. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Hi, Carly Niedertees. I'm a doctoral candidate at the University of Kentucky. So I work with two former podcast guests, Ryan Crowley and Kathy Swan. So she'll get uh, a couple call outs this episode. <laughs> Like Emma, uh, I'm one of her doctoral students, so I have gone through the Kathy Swan School of Inquiries. My research is related to integrating civic skills and experiences across the social studies disciplines. Specifically, I will be looking at world history. Great, thank you. So, Emma, can you start us off by talking a little bit about how, how did you kind of frame this whole discussion when we think about inquiry in elementary social studies? What does that consist of to you? Hmm, I think to me, it consists of kind of a lot of what has already been said is that students asking questions and the curriculum responding to those questions, kind of like what Katie was talking about. I think, too, Closing out the inquiry arc is is something that some of the articles in this issue really highlighted in that taking informed action piece so that not only are students asking questions and figuring out stuff with various sources or going out into their communities and trying to formulate multiple answers to those questions, but also doing something to communicate their conclusions, doing something to make a difference in their communities or in their classrooms or in the world. So I think that's part of it. That's inquiry at all levels, not not just elementary. But I think different about elementary is going to be this, the youngest children anyway. They come with that innate curiosity that maybe we have to work harder with the secondary and higher education students to get them curious. Dan, you were talking about like some really compelling questions at the younger level kids have those really compelling questions and they're not beaten out of them yet by by school. So they're kind of on board from the get-go. At least that's been my limited experience. Don't you hate that the, the concept that school beats curiosity out of student? <laughs> like, that's really sad. And that's it is not, sad. That's not what I, I mean, that's not what it should be. No. No, it's not. Let's stop killing the cats. <laughs> Curiosity kills cats. It shouldn't. I think they should be rewarded for being curious creatures, felines, if you will. But um, I'll see myself out. I come from a high school background. I used to teach all levels of high school social studies. So when I approached my co-author, who teaches fourth grade, on writing this inquiry, that was something that I was very cognizant of: is the kinds of questions to spark the curiosity of my the elementary school students versus those of the high school students. Going into implementing the inquiry, they're already excited. They are curious. They had all kinds of questions about this inquiry topic, which was on Kentucky slavery, versus the high school classroom where you sometimes feel like you have to, to trick them into being interested, uh, unless it's it's obviously something that is very controversial. One thing that's already come up is the C3 inquiry arc, right? Which if we just as a quick review of it, it's basically writing those good questions, compelling and supporting questions, investigating through disciplinary lenses, using evidence, 
and then communicating conclusions and taking informed action. And so I do get a lot of questions about that, about elementary students, especially using disciplinary lenses. To what degree can they use disciplinary lenses? Are there different approaches or ways we have to think about it? Or are we sometimes just just need to think about it from the things kids are interested in? I'm actually in the opposite side of, of Carly coming in from the early childhood side of things. I started off as a kindergarten teacher for eight years um, before I started working on my PhD. And so I do come from this background, like I said before, of trying to understand developmentally appropriate practice and, and how does that fit in. And one of the curriculums that uh, we focus on in early childhood education is called the Reggio Emilia approach. I mean, it's based off of a little, well, not little, but it's a town in, in Italy, actually, where Reggiano Parmigiano cheese comes from, where after World War II, after several of the, the schools had been leveled out in the after the war, parents and teachers came together and immediately wanted to start getting their young children in some type of a schooling practice. But the focus from the uh, government officials was not on getting the younger kids in school as it was on the, on the older kids. So when these teachers and parents came together, they decided to use inquiry, the, the children's natural inclinations and, and what their curiosities were about to, to have them start learning. And they base a lot of the learning through nature and then allowed them, the children, to express their understandings really through a lot of different art methods. And so it's a beautiful theme that goes along with the Reggio Emilia approach, and it's called the hundred languages of children. And what it basically says is that there's not just one particular way that children or, or really anybody is going to choose to, to communicate their understanding, their understandings about things. There's actually hundreds of ways that children could represent that understanding. So it could be through, you know, writing, but it also could be through sculpture or dance or painting or acting something out or explaining something verbally. So when I first started to hear about the C3 framework, um, I immediately started to make the connections to the Reggio Emilia curriculum because I have seen many successful projects where children have looked into an inquiry um, and then come out with some type of a product or a performance that they've then shared uh, with other people. And it can be very, very meaningful to them. So just for example, one of the projects that we've done here, even with the pre-K level kids, which the C3 framework at this point doesn't include pre-K, but I'm convinced that it should, and I'll uh, make that argument for it, was just on happiness. We had a, a classroom of four-year-olds that began talking about happiness and what is happiness. And at the beginning of that study, they basically could just give you very short answers like candy uh, or what makes you happy, candy, my toy, my dog, right? And so then through their interest and then even looking on iPads and searching through images, they would identify things that made them happy and their teacher reading them stories about happiness through this two-week period of going through the C3 framework, at the end of the period, they were really able to give some in-depth answers about what made them happy or a collection of pictures that showed what happiness was for them. So I know that that's not necessarily connected, at least, you know, not to our disciplinary standards and what need to be learned, although it's definitely connected to values and, and, and those types of things. You know, uh, I mean, understanding happiness is for yourself can help you to understand what happiness is for other people as well and how we can work towards building that happiness for other people. So, I mean, really, it, it is the very beginning of moving toward a more justice oriented citizen, right, where I can. Uh, even in that component of looking at happiness. What does it mean to me? What can it mean for you? How can we work together where we all have this understanding too? So for that, that was just the best thing for me to connect the C3 framework right to the, to the Reggio uh, curriculum, which has been used since the late 40s. 
And that's such an incredible question. Like I literally am right now just thinking about what is happiness. But I, I even started to think, I wonder if you could investigate with kids about like, well, what made people in the past happy? And we could ask grandparents, like, well, what made you happy when you were a kid like me? Or Absolutely. we could ask a bit a business owner in our community, what makes you happy in as a owning a business? And so then we could maybe there's an element of economics there. And I just think about how you could start to explore, you know, that question through just kind of thinking about, you know, the past or economics or other issues like that. And it's just based around interesting questions. Yeah. I mean, even connecting culture to it. Yeah, you know, like you just said. Um it's a just a natural a yeah. A geography of happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great idea. <laughs> I like it. I like yeah. it. Let's go um, study together. <laughs> let's let's do it. Well, and I've told on a couple episodes, I do a, a project called the Social Studies of Everything, where I argue that everything has these different I, these different disciplinary components to them, and it can allow us to ask like different types of questions than we normally would about the world. And so like happiness, we could think of the geography or the economics, the history or the civics of happiness. And yeah. I, it's they're they're fascinating explorations. So mm-hmm. Let's hear a little bit about what went into the issue. I'm, there's some fantastic articles, and of course, we're going to link it in the show notes, and we recommend everybody get a copy of this full issue and read the articles. But can, can each of you tell us a little bit about what you wrote about in your articles? I came across this idea for an inquiry, as I imagine a lot of teachers do. It was a Friday night out with my friends. We were discussing education. A lot of my friends are teachers, and many of them are elementary school teachers. And I asked them about their Kentucky curriculum. And their reactions were less than enthused about the the curriculum they had. So I already kind of had it in my head that I was wanting to write an inquiry that was on Kentucky state history. And then right around that same time, I came in on a fellowship with Southern Poverty Law Center's Teaching Tolerance Program, which you all talked to Kate Schuster about a couple episodes ago. So uh, reflecting on some of the materials we discussed uh, together for that program, coupled with wanting to integrate the state history much more meaningfully into uh, national historical narratives, led me to come to this idea. And then I worked with Jess Haney, my my co-author, in developing something that showed not just how Kentucky fits into this national history, but also how complex slavery is as exemplified by Kentucky history, with the final component being what is really important to me, that taking informed action which in the inquiry design model is a pivotal part. It's tacked at the end, but uh, I think that's what really gives relevance to any of these topics. So we wrote this inquiry on Kentucky slavery, uh, looking at geography, economics, but then also using slave narratives to give the enslaved people a voice. But then the final component was looking at Confederate monuments in Lexington, Kentucky, which is where the inquiry was implemented, so that students had a context for Kentucky slavery, and then they were able to relate that to their civic lives. And the title of your article is? How Did Slavery Shape My State? That's that's amazing. I really, that question is kind of blew me away when I was looking at it earlier. And it's so interesting because it's so multifaceted. Well, and what I love about it is it's not only how did 
Kentucky geography, for example, shape how slavery developed, but also how slavery affected the development of Kentucky as a state. Really cool. When we talked to Kate Schuster about this, we asked the question about, um, I think a lot of elementary teachers, especially pre-service teachers, ask about, how do I teach slavery to elementary school kids? What, what did you experience with this lesson? That was something my co-author and I talked quite a bit about because I taught high school. So the way I would teach slavery was very different than the way she approached it. So what we did when we were gathering sources was we really just had a conversation about it was, well, would you include this? Would you not include this? What conversations would you anticipate having with students, parents, administrators? What is going to provoke meaningful conversation and what is going to just be intriguing? So I think a lot of people don't always give credit to what elementary school students can do. So being intellectually honest with this inquiry was particularly important to both of us. You know, there were things that were sexual in nature in the slave narratives. Well, we didn't include those. But students can understand the idea of violence perpetuated against individuals. And to try to strip that violence away from it, I think, is irresponsible in many ways. But then you also don't have to shove in a bunch of violence just to get their attention. I think that's where having your community of teachers is really valuable so that you can discuss some of those things and make sure you're you're addressing it as, as appropriately as you can. Uh, did anyone else want to add anything on that? I think that's a topic that comes up a lot. Well, I wanted to highlight something about Carly's inquiry that also was held held true in several of um, the inquiries, just the local nature. So it's definitely applicable in lots of classrooms nationwide. But one of the things that I take away from Carly's is the how, how local she made it. So how did slavery state shape my state is a question that we could ask in a lot of states. Looking at Confederate monuments in their hometown is something that all again, a lot of hometowns across the nation can can do that. But so the way that she was able to take the curriculum and make it locally relevant for her students and for, for their students, I think was important in that in that article, in that inquiry. For the Southern Poverty Law Center fellowship, I wrote a version that is much more broad so that teachers in any state can apply this inquiry to their classroom. So that one is not Kentucky specific. Yeah, it's absolutely. All these things you're saying, I, I could see teaching the exact same lesson on these, these same issues in our local context. So that's fantastic. So this is Katie, and I'm going to connect to an earlier conversation that I just heard about. Kent State has a world-class child development center, which uses the Reggio approach. And so many of my pre-service teachers were coming to their experiences in early childhood through that lens, which is completely inquiry-based. Then they would get to our public schools and kindergarten, and it would all disappear, and their hearts would be broken, and they would ask what happened to play in inquiry. And what they learned didn't seem to be applying. 
So we ended up having this beautiful partnership with a local elementary school in Kent called Holden Elementary. And my article revolves around the amazing work they're doing at that K through five school. The article is called What's the Buzz? The K through five school uses the C3 framework. I got a phone call from the principal there, Todd Poole, because he had some teachers really interested in figuring out what inquiry f- could do for their school. And they had already started exploring inquiry through science. And he asked me, do you have any ideas about inquiry through a social studies lens? And I said, aha, something was just published that I think you'll really appreciate that really would provide a framework for your teachers, the C3 framework. And so there were two kind of master teachers there. Amy Hopkins is a second grade teacher and co-authored the article with me. And Susan Lewis is a fourth grade teacher there. And they were already doing pretty robust inquiry projects. So it's really nice when you go into school and there's not any convincing that has to be done because people see how authentic this learning is and how engaged the students already are. And so I was able to meet with these teachers for six days during the year, six full days of investigating each of the disciplinary lenses and what that might look like in each of the grade levels. And they collectively decided they were each going to commit to doing an entire unit based on the C3 framework. Each grade level did anything that that students became interested in that still aligned with their standards and their grade level. The projects became not only kind of transdisciplinary within social studies, but interdisciplinary, deeply interdisciplinary. Uh, Most of the projects last longer than the teachers originally intended because of the students' engagement. That's great. Yeah, they they couldn't, they didn't want to stop doing these projects. And so I I focused in the article on three particular grades. Kindergarten, instead of doing the typical boring needs versus wants, decided that they were really troubled by knowing that kids in our own community don't have what they need, let alone what they want. And they decided they were going to do some, well, they they designed a toy drive for for some of the local organizations. They decided if you're a kid, you need to play, I think. And so they donated and worked with some different organizations who came in. The second grade did an amazing unit on honeybees that starts with your typical bees flying in the room and everybody freaking out. And her husband is a beekeeper. So the students got a a really cool, engaging, year-long experience with the importance of bees in our local and international economies and um, how important taking care of honeybees are. That was probably the most robust unit. Bees flying into the classroom is a typical thing in the second grade? I think so, because, you know, I've read about that in at least one or two other books that, that prompt inquiry units. They also, what was funny is they, they started a garden there that would be good for honeybees. So I thought, oh, now we're going to have more bees flying into the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was a beautiful unit that really engaged not the, just the students, but their families who are now involved in the garden. And then the last thing that I that I looked at more in depth was a grade four project on homelessness. And it was some of the kids, this is a high poverty area, and some of the kids in the school were homeless and students were trying to make sense out of this and the justice issues around this. 
and they got into kind of deep who is homeless and why and ended up doing uh, individual presentations on their research at a culminating celebration of learning day at the end of the school year to kind of educate people on the more complex issues that arise in both local and global homelessness. So the work the teachers did, this is why I had to write this article to try to showcase what was going on in this amazing little school that is in a very working class kind of high poverty area with these teachers who are just committed to figuring out what works for their students. And the people in that building have just inspired me. And now I bring my pre-service teachers there and they observe and teach lessons in social studies through inquiry methods. So we are very grateful for the Kent City Schools. And the high school teachers are now coming to Holden to observe what's happening in the elementary so they can help adjust their curriculum and their teaching methods to more inquiry-based. So see, elementary school can do it and even can lead in this area. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think I always like to say that the, the big questions of social studies are often the same from three to 93, even if the context change, right? Like where it's about what's fair, what's right, like how yes. do we fix this? And so kids have a lot of great questions about that. That sounds like a tremendous school. I want to go there. You yeah. know what? My kids go there now. Oh, wow. Really? Yes. I, I That's learned awesome. what was going on, and we are open enrolled into that particular school. And it's beautiful wow. to watch. My son just made, at the end of the year, they did a celebration of learning. My son had to design a 3D printed object for their culmination and figure out a problem in the world and how you're going to solve it. So he uh, designed a home that cannot be destroyed in any kind of hurricane or tsunami or any kind of natural disaster. And I went to a display of his, his object that was the, the principal wrote a grant for a 3D printer, and so now they have one, and every other second grader did as well. So the inquiries continue because this is the following year now, and the inquiries wow. just continue. It's beautiful. That's fantastic. And for social studies teachers who want to learn more about how to use 3D printers, Tory Trust recently had a social education article on using 3D printers in, in social studies, and she was on episode 17 when we talked about uh, professional learning networks. I'm I'm realizing now that your title is What's the Buzz? Uh, K through five school uses C three framework. I thought it was a reference to Jesus Christ Superstar, <laughs> but now I think it's about bees. Maybe it's about both. There we go. Oh. <laughs> I definitely had that stuck in my head, and so I do most of the driving in our. We do a lot of road trips in our family, and. Uh, I do most of the driving, but my wife gets really tired, and the way she keeps herself awake is like singing that song. So, what's the brought back Excellent. a lot of memories. So. There you go. <laughs> tell us what's happening. <laughs> Who else wants to tell us what's happening? So, my article was uh, the title of it is "Chanting About Citizenship Using Arts Integration and the C3 Framework." And I think the two important parts that uh, I would like to, you know, that I think came out of this article was first just the simplicity of it. As we just heard in some of the examples, there are units, inquiry units that can get really long. And, 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 and it's not that that's a I mean, that's a good thing because the kids do get really involved in it and they want to just continue to learn more and more about their inquiry. In my case, when the teacher that I was working with, she was under a time crunch to present certain strands and standards in a certain 
time frame. So when I presented or rather what I talked to her about doing a C3 lesson, she said what they would be working on at the time. And it was just about citizenship. And basically she just presented me, she said, look, this is the standard that we need to be going over that week or in this period of time. And, and this is how long I could give you the class for. So it really, from the beginning, just became a little bit of a project to see how quickly but still efficiently and, you know, with a, in a good job, could we move through the, the stages of the framework? So just using that objective or that, that standard of what are the traits of a good citizen, we looked through how the kids could start to answer that question by collecting different resources, which included uh, reading several different books. We had some nice pic- pieces of children's literature that we used. They also interviewed parents at home uh, and relatives at home about traits of good citizens. And so then they were able to collect all of that together and and then start to to give their answer as to what they thought the traits of responsible citizens. So really, the whole thing only took two class days with the overnight between for them to go home and to do the homework part of it. And then the second part that that came out of my article, I think, is the arts integration that I talked about before. So it really helped to enhance the fourth dimension of the framework, which is on communicating your results and then taking informed action. So what I wanted the students to learn was not just this is what, you know, we're going to turn this into a little chant, a little song, and, and you'll get to repeat it. But arts integration actually includes the learning of an art curriculum almost as equally to the social studies or the discipline objective as well. So we had to have a, a little bit of an investigation into uh, chanting because chanting was the, the art um, structure that I chose uh, that the kids were interested in. And so we looked at what is what is chanting and what cultures have used chanting? And we had um, Native American chants and we had chants from Japan and we had um, chants even from modern day churches, kind of a call and response kind of chant. Uh, the kids talked about chants that they had heard at sporting events. One child even brought up chanting that she'd heard in the crowd of public protests in, in response to a shooting that we had in our, our city here, which really brought up an important point, too, because it meant that chanting didn't just have to be something that was a cheer. It could also be something that where we express you know, frustrations or, or pain as well. So we really had some fantastic conversations and just exploring chanting as an art form. So that's part of the arts integration. So we in I started off teaching about the chanting. And then we moved into talking about citizenship. And I explained to them how once they had collected their ideas of how they wanted to represent citizenship, traits of good citizens, then they would create their own chant. And so in my article, I actually provide a graphic organizer for creating a chant for those students that would need that. There were children in the class that were like, I can just make my own chant. And that was great, too, you know, um, to be able to, to go above that where some children definitely needed the the reminder of a, a chant had a kind of a repeating main line that went through it. So within two days time, we did go from the beginning to the end, where at the end, the kids had some really fun, because most of them were fun talking about responsible citizenship, excited chants that we made videos of, and they were able to share those on the local closed circuit television at the school and to just keep copies of them. The teacher placed them, I think, on their class Facebook page uh, where parents could see them as well. And I know that they were going to share those at like open house night also as some of the ex- examples of some of their performances. So um, those are the two things that I, I was really just uh, pleased with our project, that it can be a quick process. It doesn't have to be a long, overwhelming one. So if a a teacher is new at this and just wants to give it a a little bit of a try, kind of get their feet wet, 
there is a great way to do that. And it also serves as an introduction to the children for them to, to, to get an idea of, of what is this about, this process of moving through it, and then maybe prepare them for a longer one. What were some of the aspects of citizenship that they were picking out? Well, at the second grade level, when we talk about inquiry, really at, at that lower level in early childhood, the, the types of responses that you should expect from children are description, classification, and a measurement of, of some kind of change. That is what inquiry practices show that are, are developmentally appropriate. So for them, I really just wanted and hoped that they could give a description of good citizenship. You know, what are the traits of good citizenship? So they really picked up on the examples from their family and friends and from the books. And it was about picking up litter, being nice to a new neighbor, or um, helping someone who's in need, or helping animals. It was really that those kind of things that they picked up on on how they could be more responsible and caring towards each other, towards animals, and towards the earth. It's pretty good definitions. Yeah. Yeah. It came out fun. It was a fun, fun project. Is there a way that you can share one of the chants with us? Is that... Yes. <laughs> this could be uh, our just... first first Visions of Education chant. Okay. Well, I'm proud to do it. Uh, in and the, you can do it along with us at home. In the article, I actually started off the article with a chant written by one of the uh, second graders. And, you know, so she had like a little rhythm that she did and they all practiced. They, they Some of them used the sample rhythm that I gave them, but some of them picked up their own. And it was just, I am a good citizen. I can pick up litter. I am a good citizen. I can keep the animals safe. I am a good citizen. I can welcome new people. I am a good citizen. Woo! Nice. Yay! Yay. <laughs> that was written by yeah, one of the little girls in class. And they, they really enjoyed it. They were so proud to share those chants. And then the teacher did tell me that afterwards, for several other new projects, they used chanting. Uh, in the same kind of way. So it was neat. I'm only going to chant from now on, which is probably going to be annoying for Dan. Okay, start now. <laughs> we can do this entire podcast as a chant. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> that was well, really good. So th these are just amazing inquiries, and I, the articles are really great. Also, just for people that have not checked out Social Studies and the Young Learner, they do a really good job of having handouts you can use in your class. So you read about what the teachers did, and then they have these great handouts immediately make copies of and use with students in your class. But um, so to kind of start to wrap things up, what would be your takeaways if you were to give advice to teachers who want to do more inquiry in elementary social studies? What type of advice would you give them? So one that one of the takeaways I think for the issue, the special issue in general, is just the wide variety of ways that inquiry can be implemented in any classroom. So these three authors today have talked about very different contexts in, in which they designed and used inquiries from kindergarten to fourth grade, fifth grade, and the other authors in the issue as, as well show, I think, that no matter where, what the content is, no matter what the grade level is, the readiness of students, this the C3 in, inquiry arc is something that's applicable at the elementary level and that our students are ready for it. Our students are excited uh, about social studies. Our students are excited about inquiry. And the lesson that I took away from this is that if we try it, it it's challenging, yes, but it's, it's successful in a wide variety of contexts. So I would encourage readers of this issue, listeners of the podcast to to try it in their own classroom, to not be not be scared. Another thing I wanted to say that hasn't come up yet is that there are a ton of 
already created in inquiry design models or IDMs on c3teachers.org. I'm sure that's something we can maybe put up in the notes, but the, the hubs there have really well-designed, high-quality IDMs there that have all the bells and whistles uh, that teachers can just take and use starting at the kindergarten level. Um, so if it's something that's interesting, but you don't want to go create your own, there's a lot out there that you can just try. And the bells and whistles will go great with the chance. <laughs> <laughs> Jumping off of what my fellow panelists said is finding that way to connect to students' civic lives, their social lives, so that in this process, you're injecting relevancy into what you're doing. That even, you know, we're all talking about social studies inquiries in here, but doing inquiry in other disciplines can also have that, that out-of-the-classroom application that makes it meaningful. So that you're fulfilling your requirements as a teacher. Uh, it's a zero-sum game. But if it's meaningful to the students, they're more likely to remember it. So you can embed that, that purpose within any content you're tackling. And, and I'll just add into there, too. So um, as I brought up in, my, in another example, when you're looking at your standards that you have to cover in your classroom, sometimes if you are under a time crunch, you can just take a standard and, and do a little tweaking on it. And you can turn it into this compelling question that students then can work towards answering. And it doesn't have to take a, a long time unless you desire for it to take a long time. Uh, but I would just urge educators and other teachers to try it out. Don't be afraid. Research shows that we are a little fearful, or at least teachers are a little fearful of using, using inquiry. As we start to build this foundation of inquiry in children, they're going to become more and more used to it. And it could just be something that, that just becomes our new curriculum, our new educational norm as, as kids become familiar with it. So just start it off slow and, and uh, it's going to be a good thing. And the children really are going to get joy out of it. And that is part of what we start to, to lose in, in education is it's just a joyfulness to learning. And inquiry definitely represents a, a means of joy. Even learning about things that might not be considered joyful still keeps that, that curiosity alive. So don't be afraid of it. <laughs> And finally, my takeaway would be to embrace the mess because when kids become the center of gravity in the classroom, I feel like teachers get a little dizzy. <laughs> it's when taking an inquiry approach, you don't know exactly where you're going. And when you're in charge of the safety of all these young children and they're learning, um, that can be a little disorienting to not have plans so tightly, you know, concocted in your mind and to feel like you have a little bit of a sense of a loss of control. But I encourage teachers to push through that because when you watch kids take responsibility for their learning that matters to themselves and to the world, it is absolutely, absolutely worth the kind of discomfort of getting there. So I always tell teachers and pre-service teachers this is not something to just try one time with your students, and it really does become not just a strategy, but an approach to how your classroom functions. So that's what I keep telling myself as well. Embrace the mess. That's amazing. Our guest on, I think, our third episode, Kim Pennington, who is my department chair, I always remember her saying, you know, democracy is messy. 
And I think inquiry is the same way because it is democratic in a lot of senses, in a lot of ways. And so that's great advice. Thank you. I think my takeaway from today is that you can learn a lot from elementary schools. Yeah. You could even be inspired. Yeah. I'm with you. So thank you, panel, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Hey, we're we're happy to be here. (laughs) And with you, with you. Where can our listeners find uh, you all online? So I'll start. The best way to contact me would be through email. And my email is, it's really catchy. It's Thackies, T-H-A-C-K-E-E-S at jmu.edu. I didn't get to choose that email address, but that's it. Yeah. I'm also on Twitter, but I'm not very active on Twitter. I don't, I think it's E.S. Thacker. This is Erin Casey. So mine is very simple. It's E Casey. So E C A S E Y at L S U for Louisiana State University, lsu.edu. And email is definitely the best way. This is Carly Metertees. You can try to remember how to spell my name, C A R L Y dot M U E T T E R T I E S at <laughs> uky.edu. Or more easily, I am the managing editor of C3 Teachers website, which Emma mentioned earlier. If you tweet at C3 Teachers or at their Facebook page, you're going to be getting me. Wow. We talk sometimes. (laughs) I know. (laughs) I retweet your all's uh, podcast episodes all the time. (laughs) Thank you. I love I love that website. I use it a lot, both in professional development and with my own students. So thank you. It's Katie Knapp, and uh, it is Knapp, K-N-A-P-P, at kent.edu. But I have two little kids, so it's going to take me a while to get back. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you all so much for joining us today. We certainly hope to continue the conversation in our classrooms, online, and in other spaces. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks so much. At the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun, creative in education, or you just want to drop a line, hit us up at Visions of Ed. We're on Facebook as well, and possibly one other place, which I forget. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and anywhere you want us to be. And if you write us a five-star review, we'll read it on the air. Apple podcast algorithms require that for it every more people to see our episodes. So please do so. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast signing off. What was that noise? It was a head. That, so. He dropped I, the mic. Yeah, that <laughs>